We're going to talk about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. We're at the, the crux of it, the, the last moments, literally. We're going to read about the crucifixion a little bit tonight. But we're going to start way before that. Because I want us to get a little perspective on it and go to a centralized event. In fact, I think today is Passover. Um, I may be wrong on that. It's either yesterday or today, but yesterday was Passover. Uh, and so we're going to talk about the first Passover. That was a central element in the faith of the Old Testament. And for us, is a central element in our faith. Uh, because of the fact that Jesus... Death, burial, and resurrection all centered around the Passover. Uh, This comes at a time when uh, chapter 12 in the book of Exodus comes when the Israelites are captive and they want to be set free. And so uh, Moses, you you know the story of Moses. He's he's born and they're killing all the babies. And so they put Moses in a, a basket and they send him down the river and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and they raise him and Ends up his mother gets to help, and he he rises into prominence in the Egyptian uh, royal house. Um, sees a Hebrew being mistreated, uh, strikes down the guy that mistreats him. Is convicted, sent off for murder for forty years in the desert, uh, in the wilderness. Tends sheep out there as a farmer. Marries a girl. Begins to live his life when he gets a burning bush moment, literally. He sees a burning bush that is not consumed. God tells him, you're going to be my spokesman. You're going to go back. Um, he says, I can't. And he says, well, why not? Well, I don't know who sent me. Well, I'm going to send you. Well, what do I tell him? You tell him I've sent you. I can't talk. I don't want to do it. And so finally he says, okay, Aaron can be with you, but you are going to be doing this. Okay. So he goes back and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh asks this very interesting question. He says, who is your God that I should believe in. Pharaoh was in a time when there were lots of gods. Everybody had their own gods. And he asked Moses the question, Who is your God that I should believe in? What he's basically asking there is, What makes your God different? What makes your faith different? And we live in a world that right now is probably asking that question as much as any culture has asked in recent memory. What what makes yours different? Now, the world has all kinds of answers about what makes Christianity different, and they're not flattering, and they're not hopefully truthful. But what you see in the Passover, which we're going to talk about, what you see in the plagues is God demonstrating that He is the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, and you see this motif that is in there, that what is at the center of of our faith is this idea that our God is a God who reconciled people to himself by the bloody death of a helpless victim. That is unique in religions. Sometimes people will read stories, and we're going to talk about some stories in here that seem almost barbaric, a couple of examples. And people read that and they say, well, that's a different time. That was a different place. And it's just like all those other things around there. It's like Homer and the Odyssey or the Iliad. It's like, uh, it's like the Roman gods. It's like the Greek gods. But here's the thing that the Romans and the Greeks and no other ancient civilization ever imagined, nor could they. 
that the God that they worshipped would be the victim that rescued them. Chapter 12 of Exodus. So we get to chapter 12. Moses has repeatedly asked Pharaoh to let God's people go. And repeatedly Pharaoh has said no, so God sends a plague. What are the plagues? Tell me some of the plagues that come. Frogs, right? Locusts, gnats, water turned to blood, boils all over the body. Doesn't that sound fun? Anybody? We'll sign up for that. Hail that was burning. Yeah. So you have these things happening. And after every one, Pharaoh seems to soften for a moment. And then he says, no, no, no. I can't lose two million of my workforce. Free. I mean, it's kind of hard to stomach, right? You've got a two million strong free labor force. It's kind of hard to say, we'll just let them all go. We won't worry about the economic impact of that. So in chapter 12, we have the last straw, the last thing. And at the center of it is the story of a lamb. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this is verse 1, This month is to be your first, the, you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are determined the amount of land needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames on the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat their meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made with yeast. Do not eat the bread, or do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left in morning, you must burn it. This is how you do eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so you have this, this kind of strange festival happening. And in chapter 12, verse 12, he tells us the reason. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So you have this this ritual kind of set up. And what you've got is that um, God is telling the Israelites, I'm getting ready to deliver you. Now, how do we know from this account that God wants them to be ready to be delivered? They got their shoes on. What else? What else are they supposed to They're supposed to have their shoes on, supposed to have their, their staff in their hand and their cloak tucked in. Now, why did you tuck it in? So you could run. Um, there's that, that symbol in... Um, in uh, the prodigal son where he tucks in, he gets ready and you pull up and you remember they were wearing long uh, tunics, not dresses, right? They're men, they wear tunics. And so they were wearing long and so it would be inhibiting to them to run. So 
God tells him, it's coming soon. Your deliverance is coming, and this is how it's going to take place. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting is that God basically, in chapter 12, describes that that night, for a moment, a temporary, preliminary judgment is going to happen. For one night, in one place, it's as if God is going to fast forward the movie to the book of Revelation. And he is going to send a destroyer through to judge. Now, verse 23 gives a little more insight to that. I'm not going to read all the way down there. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and the sides of the door frame, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. The idea literally there is God is telling them that on this specific night, I'm going to unleash from heaven a preliminary, temporary preview of what destruction will be like in the end of time. Now, we all know that just in life in general, when we choose to do things that are outside of God's will, that destruction follows. Deterioration follows. Difficulty can follow. And that we deal on a daily basis with destruction that comes from people's sinfulness. But what God says here is, I'm not talking about the natural effects. What I'm saying is that for one night, in one place, I am going to unleash the wrath of my judgment on the firstborn that are there. But there is something that can protect you. Now think about this for a minute. What was the most powerful country on the planet at this time? Egypt, right? Who had the most powerful army in the country, in the world? Egypt. And God tells the Israelites, I, to use a phrase from today, am going to cut through them like a knife through hot butter. There will be no way they can deny my power. But you can have protection. All it requires is a lamb. The most powerful army on the face of the earth will not prevent me from destroying their firstborn. But all it requires from you is a lamb. Now, the lamb is a significant symbol throughout Scripture. There are about four major acts of the lamb, and this is act number two. So we're going to go back to act number one. And act number one takes place in Genesis chapter 22. You might remember what Genesis chapter 22 is. Abraham and Isaac, right? And God comes to Abraham. Remember, we talked about Abraham on Sunday, that God had appointed Abraham for this great mission, this unbelievable task, that he was going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham, that Abraham was to be the father of a great nation. And the problem was, at that moment, Abraham didn't have any kids. So Abraham has a child. The father, Abram, becomes Abraham, the father of many, by renamed by God, and then he has a child. And so he gets comfortable learning, doing all this. Isaac's growing up. Abraham can see some things happening. God is fulfilling his promises. And then all of a sudden, God says, 
Abraham, I want you to get up. I want you to take your only son. And I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Now we, in our modern, individualistic family culture, don't understand that command at all. And think Abraham probably would have thought... That is barbaric. That is not going to happen. I'm not going to allow that to happen. But the Scripture says immediately he got ready, made preparations, and he went. Why did he not question? Don't we see Abraham at other places questioning God? You ever thought about that? When God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abraham say? He argues about it, back and forth, about a group of people that he doesn't really know. I mean, he knows of them, but... It's not his son. And when God says, go kill your son, it just says he did it. He doesn't argue about it. He doesn't say, God, I don't understand it. Why are you letting that happen? And if you talk to people that are outside the faith, and even some people that are in the faith, that believe in Christ, believe in Jesus, believe in the Bible, they have a hard time with this passage. And if we're honest with ourselves, there have been moments in all of our lives when we have struggled with this passage. Abraham just says, Okay. You see, what we fail to remember is that they lived in a family group society. You realize, and we've talked about this before, that Americans are the most individualistic group of people that have ever existed on the face of the planet. Families today. I was reading something the other day that was just kind of shocking. They did a study. I know this is going to shock you, so be prepared. Families that had dinner together three times a week, their kids were more successful in school. That was the minimum requirement. Three times a week. Now, let me just ask. Some of you are, some of you are a couple of years older than me. All right? Some of you, yeah. I don't know. I don't see anybody in here younger than me tonight, maybe. Okay? Did you eat dinner with your family? Every night, right? Why? That's what you did, right? You ate dinner with your family. I ate dinner with my family every night. Uh, what's that? Yeah, if you wanted to eat, you ate with your family, right? <laughs> yeah. It went in front of the television. No fast food. Cooked. You, you had it there, okay? Yet, you ate at the table, right? Around, and you talked about life, right? I used to, my my dad, and it's in, you know you know this as you get older you see more of your parents in you and that inevitable fight to not be your parents. You, we were talking about that a couple of days ago, right, Wayne? Was that yesterday? We were talking about it at the table a little bit. Um, that you either fight to be like them or you just settle that you already are and you just accept it and move on. All right. My dad used to bug us to death asking us questions about our day. What was your favorite part of the day? What did you like about today? What did you do today? What did you learn at school today? Did you have anything fun today at school? And I, I don't want to talk about it, you know. I, you know now what do I do when Eli? What did you do today? What's your favorite part of the day? All right? And he has the same answers. I'm nothing. I didn't do anything. Who'd you play with on the playground? Nobody. All right? No, what did you learn? No, I didn't do anything. Did you have anything fun? No. But you had this family environment, okay? Yeah. 
You have those conversations around the table. And so you had this sense of family. Now, in their culture, dinners around the table didn't happen all the time. Sometimes they'd have dinners around the fires outside. They'd have community feasts. You realize that the first Christians, when they got together and they worshipped together, they had an agape feast, a love feast. And at the end of it, they'd take the Lord's Supper. They ate in their worship center. Now, their worship centers were people's homes, but they ate there and fellowshiped together. I read something today about us as Americans that we've become so independent that we no longer need each other. Well, in Jewish culture of Abraham, that's why the radical call to leave the family was a radical call. And he gets to this place and he's got this family. And so God says, now go take your son. What we have to understand is they were a group mentality, not an individualistic. You weren't responsible just for your sin. You were responsible for everybody's sin. Remember the story in Joshua 7 and 8 with the battle of Ai when Achan steals some of the devoted things and they come back and who stole it, who stole it? Well, we found out it was Achan stole it, so we just killed Achan, right? No. They killed the whole family. Why? Because when you sin, the family sinned. Now, what does that have to do with Abraham and Isaac? The firstborn was of utmost importance in that society. The firstborn was the one that got the biggest share of the inheritance. They got the blessing. They got the rewards for being firstborn. They embodied every hope that that family had. But here's what also happened. God told them over and over again, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, that every firstborn is mine unless they are redeemed. Every firstborn is mine, unless they are redeemed. In fact, they paid money every year as redemption for their firstborn. And so, rightfully, God had a right to every firstborn. And so when God says to Abram, take Isaac, he's mine, and head up to sacrifice. What was being reminded to Abraham is that every family on the planet Earth owes a debt unto the Lord because of the sin in their lives. And payment must be paid. Every family on the face of the Earth owes a debt unto the Lord. And a payment must be paid. So we get in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 22 of the book of Genesis when Isaac asked that question to his dad, they're on their way to be sacrificed. And he says, hey, Dad, um, I see we got the firewood. And uh, I realize we got all the supplies. And we're headed up to the place where we're supposed to sacrifice. Um, just a quick question. Um, where's, the, uh, where's the lamb? Right? It's a pretty astute boy. Also tells you Abraham didn't tell him what was going on. And Abraham gives him... A simple response. He simply says, My son, the Lord will provide. Now here's what's going on in Abraham's heart, I believe. He says, I pray and hope that the payment 
for my sin won't be the death of the firstborn, even though God has every right to demand it. I hope I will not have to sacrifice you as my offering for sin. Now, there are people that object to that whole kind of discussion. Don't you think it's a little extreme to say that every person on the planet owes a debt unto the Lord? Well, it's extreme unless you face reality. I mean, if you don't think sin is rampant in our society and every society we've ever seen, then you're free to say that. But I have yet to meet somebody that didn't mess up. Anybody here? Never messed up? (laughs) We all mess up, right? All the time. And so we all have a debt unto the Lord because it is required that we'd be perfect. Well, then they say, well, if they owe a debt, why can't God just forgive it? Why can't he just say it's forgiven? He's all powerful. He can do that. And that sounds good, but we know that's just not how it works. Let me ask you a question. If I walked into your house and you had a prized $500 lamp sitting beside your favorite recliner, and I went to sit in your favorite recliner and tripped and threw my arms out and knocked your lamp off your table and it shattered. Could you forgive me for that? I hope so. Yeah. So, you could forgive. But somebody's still going to have to pay for the mistake. There are a couple of ways you can forgive me. You can say, I forgive you, but... I need $400, $500, $600 to replace what I have. Or you can say, I forgive you, don't worry about it. But then either you're going to go have to buy a new lamp or you're out what that lamp costs, right? There is a cost to forgiveness at all times. In society, um, if someone, they catch somebody on the on the news this afternoon, or we go home and the news is on, and they've caught a notorious, you know, the, the, let's just say the guy that, that in, in up in New York, up on the beaches of New York, up in the Northeast, that they're finding all this stuff. Okay, so they catch him out here in, in uh, uh, we'll say a little farther away, out in Dixon, all right? So we're not too close to us, but they catch him in Dixon, and they decide to hold the trial here because they found him here, and for some reason they're not going to take him back. And so they hold the trial, and at the trial they say, you know what? We just forgive him. Is that going to work? Now, first of all, no, because there's a sense of right and wrong that we have, which is a discussion for another day. But even if he were set free with no punishment, somebody's going to pay. And it devalues the life of those whom he has taken. We went uh, Monday night. We had a, the third Monday man night, church Monday man night. And I went. We went to see a movie called The Conspirator. Um, I, it was a part of the Lincoln assassination I'd never really been made aware of. I, you know, and if I was, I don't remember it. But there was a boarding house where a lot of the, you know, you know that when Lincoln was assassinated that night, the Secretary of State was attacked, and there was supposed to be an attempt on Andrew uh, Johnson's life as well. They were 
there was a there was a conspiracy to take out all three at the same exact moment almost, so that the government is thrown into chaos and the South could continue to fight better. Well, they met at a boarding house. These guys, John Wilkes Booth, who was the actor, and some of these other guys. And there was only one person that got away that was a part of that conspirators, and it was the son of the lady who ran the boarding house. Now, you get the real sense in the movie, and from some reading I've done since then, they really didn't want her. They wanted her son. But they couldn't find her son. So you know what they did? They arrested her put her in jail, and put her in a military trial. Towards the end of that, you get there's the, the discussion between the Secretary of War and the guy that's trying the case for the government. And the Secretary of War says, somebody has to pay for what happened to our president. And the people of this country are demanding somebody has to pay. And John Wilkes Booth wasn't enough because he got kind of caught in a crossfire. And the point of that is, it's easy to say, couldn't God just forgive? But on a deeper level, we know that's just not how it works. Payment has to be made. Go to Exodus 12 again. If you turned over to Genesis, if you didn't, you're still there. Because that's the first thing. What happens eventually in that story of Abraham and Isaac? What happens? God provides, right? There's a ram caught in the thicket. But the point still is there. The debt has to be paid. We get to Exodus chapter 12, and you get the, the, the thing we've just described. There's this interesting thing that happens there. Uh, it's in verse 22. You, you see something kind of interesting there. Um, he, he tells them to take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood on the basin, and put some of the blood on top and on both sides of the door frame. Then it says this. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. Now, why did they not want him going out of the house? Yeah. Where were you protected? In the house. So if you were a Jew who wandered outside of your house when the destroyer came, what was going to happen? You're done. The point there is, that this is, what he was saying is this isn't a Jew-Egyptian thing. This is the fact that this judgment is coming on all people. If you step out of the protection of the Lord, you are with all people. The destroyer that night was going to be no respecter of nations. If you get out there, you're no better than the Egyptians. So don't go out after you put the blood on the doorpost. Now here's the second thing that we see in this part about the Lamb. The lamb literally served as a substitution for the firstborn. Right? What saved the house? The blood on the door. The lamb. So can you imagine being a firstborn son sitting at the table that night eating the lamb? Because you had to eat it all. As you sat there and ate the lamb, you knew that that lamb gave its life for you. The reason you're going to be okay and sleep well tonight 
is because of the lamb on the table. Now let's go to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. You can turn to wherever you want to in the Gospels. John doesn't give us a lot on the Passover meal, but you know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about the Passover meal. Now, what would happen in Israel after that initial Passover night is every year on Passover, they would gather around the table and they would have those bitter herbs and they would be celebrating with their tunics tucked in, with their shoes on, with their staff in their hand. They would have unleavened bread. They would have the wine and they would have the lamb. And at the beginning of the meal, the dad would stand up. And he would begin to interpret the meal for them, almost like a family devotion. Saying, this is our Passover meal. And tonight we share in this bread that is made without leaven, because the Lord promised that He would deliver us quickly after the angel passed over. And we drink of the cup tonight. We see the bitter herbs to remind us of the Passover And we are reminded that the blood of this Lamb protected our ancestors from death. There are scholars that say when Passover was happening in Jerusalem, that blood would flow through the streets of Jerusalem because of so many lambs being killed. And on this night, the disciples gather with Jesus and they're ready to partake. And Jesus stands up. And instead of saying, this is the bread that is made without leaven, and it reminds us of the quickness that our people had to be ready to leave, He says, this is my body, broken for you. This cup is my blood, shed for you. What's the one thing not mentioned? The lamb. None of the Gospels mention the Lamb. Now, there are some people that say, well, there had to be one there. It wouldn't be a proper Passover meal. And I don't know if there was a Lamb on the table or not, but there was a Lamb explaining the meal to them. And as Jesus gets ready, no Lamb is mentioned because the Lamb had just washed their feet. And the Lamb was preparing to go to his death. In John 19, it tells us that Jesus had no bones broken when he died because the lamb was to be of no blemish or mark. The Gospels tell us that Jesus died at twilight because the lamb was to be killed at twilight. And on the night that our Savior died, He became the Lamb that was the substitution for your sin and mine. Abraham realized there was a debt to pay that we could not pay. Moses realized that substitution could be made in the form of the Lamb. And Jesus proclaimed, I am that Lamb. In Revelation, we have a picture of the Lamb glorified and reigning. There's a part at the beginning of the Gospels where John the Baptist is getting ready to introduce the people to Jesus. 
what phrase does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb. That word behold there means to gaze, to look, to ponder, to think. And as we gather on this Wednesday and prepare for the coming Good Friday, I do this almost every year. I just want to read you what a physician said the last few hours of Jesus' life would have been like. He talks about going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, the Gospels tell us, this is an interviewer, that he began to sweat blood. Come on, isn't that just some overactive imaginations? He says, not at all. It's a known medical condition called hematridosis. It's not common, but it's associated with high degree of psychological stress. Severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries and the sweat glands. As a result, there's a small amount of bleeding into these glands, and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, but he literally sweats blood. Did that have any other effects on his body? And he said, yeah, what it did was to set up the skin to be fragile. So that when Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldier the next day, his skin would have been very, very sensitive. What was flogging like? Well, Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently there were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier. A soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had pieces of sharp bone as well which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine would sometimes be exposed. The wood could have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, even to the back of the legs. It was terrible. One physician who studied the beating said that as the flogging continued, the tears would tear into underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people never made it to the cross. They died in the beating. They suffered from hypovolemic shock, which means just that they had low blood volume. Jesus was in hypovolemic shock as he staggered up the road to the execution site carrying the beam of the cross. That's why he collapsed, and that's why he said, I thirst. What happened when they arrived at the site of the crucifixion? He would have been laid down. His hands would have been nailed in the outstretched position to the horizontal beam. The crossbar was called the patabulum, and it was this stage it was separate from the vertical beam, which was permanently set in the ground. Nailed with what? Where? The Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long, tapered to a sharp point. They would have been driven through the wrist. Wait a minute, I thought he pierced the palms. That's what the painting shows. Through the wrist, it was a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear. It went through the wrist, but in that day, the hand was considered that whole area. The nail would go right where the median nerve runs. It's the largest nerve going out to the hand, and it being crushed would be by the nail being pounded in. What kind of pain are we talking about? Let me put it this way. Do you know the pain you feel when you bang your elbow and you hit the funny bone? That's a nerve called the urinal nerve. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. He said, take a, this is the picture. 
Take a pair of pliers, squeeze and crush that nerve until it breaks. That's similar to what Jesus would have experienced. The pain on the cross was so horrible, they had to invent a new word. Excruciating. Which means out of the cross. At that point, Jesus would have been hoisted as the crossbar was attached to the vertical stake. The nails were driven through his feet. Again, the nerves in the feet would have been crushed. There would have been a similar kind of pain. The arms would have immediately been stretched, probably about six inches in length. Both shoulders would have become dislocated. It's just simple math to understand. Once the person is hanging in a vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizing slow death of asphyxiation. The reason is that the muscles in the diaphragm put the chest in an inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, you must push up so that the muscles would ease for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, locking on the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would be able to relax down take another breath. Again, he'd have to push himself up, all the time scraping his bloody back against the wood of the cross. It would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. As the person slows down his breathing, he goes into respiratory acidosis. Carbon dioxide that does dissolved in carbonic acid, causing the blood acidity to rise, eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have been known that he was at the moment of death, which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he would have died of cardiac arrest. Today at the Holy Week service, I preached out of Romans chapter 12. And he says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, in light of everything that I've told you about what Christ did for you, in light of everything that happened, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing unto God. Don't be transformed. I mean, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can know what God's will is. I asked this question today, and it's a question I've struggled with this week. We gather on these Passion Weeks, and we talk about the cross of Christ, and we talk about all that He's done for us. And It's easy to to hear all that and, and to be emotional and or to say amen or to be excited about what He's done. And those are all valid things. The question I asked today at the Holy Week service was this. What has the truth of what he did for us cost you? Jesus said to his followers, If any man is to come after me, he must do what? Take up his cross. If any man is to come, he must pick it up and come. Jeff sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I've told you before, one of my favorite verses in all the hymns is that last verse. I mean, you just had that, that third verse, see from his head, his hands, blood and water flow down. Never have things so mingled together like that. But you get to that last verse, and this is what it says. Were the whole realm of nature 
mine. That is a gift far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands, demands my soul, my life, my all.